0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clear Note Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 5 or look up here. We have it up here also, Matthew 5 we're going to be reading verses 21 to 26. Matthew 5, 21 and 26. Just to set the stage, this is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is a time, this is probably the largest body of teaching, preaching of our Lord that we have in the Gospels. And we're picking up in the middle of it. And the verse just before what we're going to read today... Not Matthew 25, Matthew 5, excuse me. Um, Right before this, what Jesus says to the people that he's preaching to is, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is just up the ante intensely. And you know how we all think that if we are in a church and we sit under the preaching of the word, we've been baptized, our grandmother's a Christian, whatever, that we think we're safe, we're, we're going to go to heaven and we just have to sort of live a Christian life, right? Well, everybody listening to Jesus felt the same way. They felt like, well, the Pharisees and scribes, in other words, the pastors and elders, that's roughly. Analogous to what we're dealing with here. The pastors and elders haven't asked me to come in an office recently and talk to me. And so I must be okay, you know. And so I'm headed to heaven because I know the pastors and elders are headed to heaven. And, and they're okay with me. I haven't been admonished recently. And so I'm okay. I'm okay, right? And this is where we judge ourselves by the people around us. And so Jesus is trying to make it clear to people who think that they're sinners, but they're not such bad sinners that there's no hope for them. He's trying to make it clear to them (coughs) that, in fact, they're hopeless. It's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. You get done the Sermon on the Mount. It intensifies, 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 intensifies until you despair. And he's in the middle of this, and he says to them, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the pastors and elders, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, what's the implication of that for the scribes and Pharisees? Well the the implication is there's no hope of the scribes and Pharisees going to heaven, right? So you can imagine it's very unsettling to everybody listening to Jesus because everybody just takes their cue from the pastor. Right? And all of a sudden he says, your righteousness better exceed them, or you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, I want you to understand that's what comes immediately before. And then we have our scripture text, picking up with verse 21. Jesus continues, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is called the Sermon on the Mount, and a lot of people think that because Jesus says, you have heard it said unto you, that," da, 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 but I say to you, a lot of people think that Jesus is, is, is creating a new law, and that this is a new standard. Make no mistake about it, God has always been trying, through the prophets, through the law, through Jesus' teaching, through the New Testament, to convince us that it's actually much, much worse than any moralist could ever conceive of. Moralists are always into the business of relative righteousness. A moralist lives in the space he crafts for himself by condemning everybody else so that he can then feel that he's not as bad as he, as he knows he is. right. A number of years ago, about 21 or 22 years ago, I got an email from a man uh, who uh, I got to think carefully about how I say this. Uh, A man who he and his wife were in that church at the time. All right, and I want to read read this to you. You can go out and criticize the whole world. And act like they are so sinful. I didn't tell you this this is a letter. <laughs> this is a letter from that man's wife to him. A godly woman. And this letter has borne much fruit in, in his life, all right? But this is 22 years ago, it's fresh. And this man is the one that gave this to me. His wife wrote him, you can go out and criticize the whole world and act like they are so sinful. You can criticize the college kids they are down at the bars drinking every night. You criticize the fraternities and sororities for being rich and being snobs. You criticize the girlfriends and boyfriends living together. You criticize the married couple who gets divorced and didn't try hard enough to stay together. You criticize the people who are speeding. And now you know it wasn't my wife that wrote it to me, right? You criticize the guy who is gay. You criticize everyone that's not like you, not as good as you. You can make it sound like everyone else's sins are worse than your own. Your crusade is to save everyone from their wretched state, and in so doing, you become the wretched person yourself. I love you, John Doe. That's not his real name. I, mean, I meant everything I said about you being like the guy in the movie far and away. But that doesn't mean I can't hate the sin in your life. More than the judgment you pronounce on others, I hate the judgment you pronounce on yourself. The critical eye you have on others is only a glimpse of the criticism you scream at yourself. You are a perfectionist. You expect perfection of yourself. That is why you can't stand to see anyone else not perfect. You're wretched to the core This is a wife to her husband, a godly wife to her her husband. You are wretched to the core. And nothing you can do will change that. You know that, so why do you try? Go back to God, John. I'll be the first to admit I've been ignoring him, but I'm trying starting now. I know I'm as wretched as anyone else. And I will give myself to God and go by his strength. If you're not doing so, which you might be, I encourage you to do the same. I love you always. Isn't that a wonderful love of a wife for her husband? Huh? It's beautiful. And as I said at the beginning, the fruit that produced in their marriage is beautiful. And so Jesus is speaking to people who are just like that husband. The Jews spend their life dissing the Goim, the Gentiles. They're dirty and they won't eat their food because their food's dirty. Everything about them is dirty. They touch dead bodies. They eat the wrong food. They don't have the book of the law of God. They don't have the prophets. Theirs is not the inheritance. And Jesus knows that there's no hope for a man who doesn't despair of himself. And so the Sermon on the Mount, it just escalates and escalates and ex- It just gets intense and intense and intense and intense and intense and intense. And it's intended to take a nation of moralists led by pastors and elders who are moralists and destroy their pretense of self-righteousness, Right? Right? You all know this. Right? You remember Paul does the same thing, the Apostle Paul, if you, at the beginning of Romans, right? He describes pagans, homosexual and lesbians, uh, evolutionists, snob scholars. Just he describes them to a T, right? You all know this. And it escalates and escalates. And all of us are sitting in the background doing what? You know, we're all in the background going, you go, girl, right? Except Apostle Paul isn't a girl. And then he says, and it's just like gotten really sweet. We're just confirmed in our self-righteousness in America today, in Bloomington, right? It's just like, and then he says, therefore, what? You. Now he's talking to Christians. He says, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. And of course, he's led us down the rosy path. He's the one that's gotten us to judge. Yeah, yeah, they're proud, they won't give praise to God. they and they're blah, oh. blah blah blah. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. And it's like, what, me? Are you serious? I'm not having sex with another man. That which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. It's like, no, I don't. No, I don't. Right? Isn't that how we all respond at that point? How could you say I practice the same things? But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads them to repentance? (laughs) Now, do you know that I just twisted Scripture? It's not what it says. It says the kindness of God leads you to repentance. You. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness of God. Who will render to each person according to his deeds? You know, every time, you, those of you who come here regularly or are part of this church, you know that I listen to this every time I cut the grass, right? And generally, the amount of grass I cut equals all of Romans... And a few chapters, repeated. Okay, so every time I cut the grass, listen to the whole book of Romans, right? And it gets to that section. And nothing is more of an encouragement to me in the book of Romans than this right here. Why? Well, because who would worship a God that doesn't nail you? Who wants a God who is smaller than you are? Who wants a God that lies to you? Who wants a God that that speaks to you like, 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 like Facebook does? You know, you're so wonderful. Oh, so you have flowers on your table, and you have all your children in their high chairs, and they're clean, and the food is being eaten carefully with napkins in lap and nobody's reaching at the table and you have taught your children for all five days of the previous week and they're in classical home curriculum and your husband is the most godly man in the world and your husband treats you with dignity and you submit to your husband and your car is clean, even the inside of your car is clean and there's no weeds in your garden and aren't you wonderful, right? And those nasty homosexuals. And Jesus comes into people just like us, and he says, I tell you, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of Clearnote Church Bloomington, there's no hope for you. And then he says, What? Well,. You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court, but I say to you, and he escalates. It's like, okay, you think you don't have blood on your hands, you can say you never had an abortion. Right? I have a couple of friends of my parents that I remember when they killed somebody with a car. One of them backed up over his grandchild. And the other one was this wonderful English teacher in high school. I never got to have her, but my brother and sister did, and she was the best English teacher ever. And she hit a child as she was driving. And you know those are life-defining moments. Why? I have this recurring dream that I kill somebody, and I can't get rid of the blood guilt. And the dream is not my killing the person. The dream is that I realize the rest of my life, I I have blood on my hands. And it's horror. It's a horror. Jesus says what? Well, Jesus says, you've heard that you shouldn't murder. And that the person that does should be taken to court, needs to be dealt with, right? And then he says, but I tell you what? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court." Angry, just angry. You know, I say over and over again that if we're honest, we really don't like the Bible and we don't like Jesus, but we're not honest. Who was it that was talking yesterday or the day before and they were talking about something and they said that it's like, uh, I don't remember what they said, but it was like, you know, Jesus is like a Walt Disney character and everything he says is like a Walt Disney movie. You know, you just sort of put it on and it doesn't have reality because it's Jesus and it's in the Bible, you know. But the fact is, if Jesus were here and said this to you and you didn't know it was in the Bible, I'm telling you, your attitude would be skepticism. You'd say, oh, come on. That's a little bit over the top, Tim. You know, I know what hyperbole is. It's amazing how much of Jesus, what Jesus said we accuse of being hyperbole. Well, you know, the people he was talking to were such moralists that he had to say things that weren't true in order to bring them to a point where what they thought was true. And so no being angry, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't go to court because you're angry against and why is he using that in a parallel construction with murder? It's just like over the top, Jesus. You know? Nobody's going to trust you because you're always over the top. You know, you're crying woof, woof, woof. You know, and, and it's like, it's not the same, Jesus. And Jesus is not saying it is the same. What he's saying is the penalty that you are easy to fix for actual bloodshed is also the penalty for being angry. You get, well, I get angry, you know, I get angry a hundred times a day. I say, okay, fine. You have violated the fifth commandment, or the sixth commandment, a hundred times a day. Because the person you're angry at is made in the image of God. Do you understand this? God made them. And you are called to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You know? And you say, well, if you think I get angry at myself a hundred times, I get a- I mean, at my neighbor, I get angry at myself a thousand times. And that's why I get angry at my neighbor. And I say, yeah, you're a moralist. You are unwilling to live in the grace of God. Instead, you're living in a tit-for-tat world. And so, yeah, you are intolerable to yourself, and therefore the entire world is intolerable. And it's not because you love yourself, you despise yourself. The reason you despise yourself is because you're so damn proud. And so you listen to Jesus, you say, what's not the same? I shouldn't be liable just because I get angry at people. I say, oh, okay, 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 okay. Jesus is wrong. Well, I'm not saying Jesus is wrong. But Jesus doesn't know what he did to me. I say, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus has such trouble identifying with people oppressing and persecuting and spitting on him? Well, but he's God. He could handle it. I say, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, Jesus is God, so you can't be held to the standards of Jesus, even though God has commanded you, be holy, as I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Right? Right? Jesus continues verse 22 and so he's not done with us yet. And whoever says to his brother you good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court. <laughs> oh my. I mean this is this is this is what characterizes the relationships of the the men and women who are married here, and the children who are in a home. A home is nothing other than children constantly looking at their siblings and saying, you're good for nothing. Don't tell me I'm wrong. You can see it in their faces when they're little kids. You can see it by the way that they take the toy out of their siblings' hand. It's not innocent. When I walk into the presence of my granddaughter, Mary Louise, the adults that know her start laughing. You know why? The minute I walk into her space, which is to kiss my daughter holding her or my wife holding her, she will take her head and she'll turn away and she'll start crying. Pinch her so they can hear her crying. I'm just kidding. You know, I mean, all start laughing. She has a will, and that will is that she will not acknowledge my presence in her body space. So if I quick comp on to my wife or my daughter and kiss them and, and, and coo in their ear, she'll tolerate that because her love for them is so great that she's willing to tolerate that, that man. Now, does she have any reason to be that way? Well, yeah, but it's not because I've done anything to her except violate her body space. In other words, this little one has an intense will. When we were singing earlier with the choir or clapping, she loved it. She was completely open to it. She didn't even know I was next to her. Listen, from the time a child is in the womb, that child is a moral agent who is under the sentence of death of Adam. Every child has original sin and is corrupt little girls that are the sweetest things on the face of the earth and pretty to boot have a will that is corrupted by Adam's sin. And so your home is filled with little people who are constantly saying to the other little people in the home, you good for nothing. Manners are intended to instruct that child so that it stops thinking that way. Letting them go first instead of reaching, passing. Not taking all the meat when it's a family hold back meal. Okay? There are constant opportunities for you as parents to instruct your children that they should never think the thought about their siblings, you good for nothing. And Jesus says this. He says, first of all, about anger, go before the court. Then he says, you good for nothing, she'll be guilty before the Supreme Court. So we're escalating here. We're going from the court to the Supreme Court. In other words, it's worse to say you good for nothing than it is to be angry. And then, and Jesus is, Jesus is just, he just can't stop crying wolf, Right? I mean, who in the right mind thinks you should go to the Supreme Court because you say good for nothing? And then he says, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So anger, good for nothing, fool. And you know that this is what children say to each other all the time, you fool. This is what you say about your husband in the deepest secrets of your heart. <laughs> and I know every wife here will lie to me and say I've never thought that in my life. And I will say that's the reason then that your husband is constantly working and disciplining for peace among the siblings in your home. Your husband is vigilant to bring peace to your home. He rules the home so that there is no anger, there is no you good for nothing, and there's no fool between the children and the home. And the reason he does that is because, and the reason he's so faithful and vigilant and zealous for it is because you always are just so admiring of your husband, and he never feels your disapproval. He never thinks that maybe you're thinking in your mind, I'm angry, just a little bit angry or you could for nothing or are you fool i'm being facetious there is no woman who does not regularly have thoughts on one of those three levels about her husband because women are women you know the joke i keep telling it if a, if a man speaks in a forest and there isn't a woman to hear him is he still wrong Oh my goodness, you guys. Sometimes, you should all be laughing. Jokes don't get bad because you keep get telling them. Pat the bunny doesn't get less endearing. Unless you don't like it, that's okay. Velveteen rabbit, you know. The horrible Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. So here's, here's my point. My point is that in your marriages, you as a wife do look at your husband and you're angry at him and you think him to be good for nothing when it comes to the discipline of your children and sometimes you think he's a fool and sometimes you actually say it. Okay? And that's one of the main reasons that your husband does not lead in the home and discipline your children. If you have children in your home who are angry at each other, who think of each other as good for nothing, and who call each other fools, it's because you, as the father of that home, have told your children that that's how you want them to live with each other. And you say, no, I've never said that. It grieves me. I cry over it, and I say, no, you don't. You want it to be that way because you haven't stopped it. And then you'll say, oh, no, 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 I really do. I just don't know what to do. And I say, well, God's made you the head of your home. And God has commanded there to be peace. God has said that you are his agent of reconciliation to the world. You know that. Let me read that to you. This is what Scripture says. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and then what does it say? It says, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is our calling as Christians. This is what God's called us to do. If God has called us to be his agents of reconciliation with the world, how on earth is it that we allow there to be strife and jealousy and envy prevailing among our children? It's inexcusable. And then your children don't stop when they become adults. I was asked in an interview a couple weeks ago. The guy had read the book on fatherhood I just finished. And he said to me, You know, Tim, I read about how your father wasn't there for you because of the death of his, his sons when you were in your adolescence. And then he was there for your brothers, David and Nathan. And he said... Didn't you feel angry weren't you envious weren't you bitter about that that he was there for your brothers it was the very end of the interview it was a good question and so i thought about it for a second and i said well you know what i said right i mean you're on you're on the radio you know and so you say no no oh no i said no no i wasn't bitter i wasn't envious i I was I was just magnanimous. I was so like no oblige about it. You know, I was like, well, if I had to suffer so they could have something better, <laughs> I'm happy to suffer. What I said was, actually, no, because by the time he was good with my younger brothers, he was he was good with me, and I needed it because I was. And then I said, but on the other hand, I would have liked it when I was an adolescent instead of when I was already an adult. But I said it was such a sweet thing to see his relationship with my brothers when they were in high school. And that's true. I had to tell the truth. But you know what I said then? I said, but don't you think for a second that sibling rivalry doesn't last until you die? (laughs) And I said, my brother David and I, you know, You guys, I watch you when your parents die. I watch the fights over something that isn't worth $3, but it meant so much to you. Why does it mean so much to you that you're willing to have a division in your family over a trinket that's not worth $3? Well, the reason is that that trinket is the way that you get back at your siblings. (laughs) for having been their mother's favorite child. It's not that you care about the trinket. It's like you're processing through possessions and money all of the bitterness and all of the envy and all of the anger, all of the you fool, you good-for-nothing of your whole life with your siblings. And Jesus says what? Jesus says, if you're angry, court if you say you good for nothing supreme court if you say you fool what does he say about you if you say you fool what does he say she'll be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell you remember how I say we don't really like Jesus you know who talks about hell more than anybody else in scripture Jesus In fact, Jesus speaks of hell in a nonchalant, just in passing sort of way. Do you see that here? This is not the point of the text. He just throws hell in because, well, hell, fiery hell. Oh, really, fiery hell? I mean, Jonathan Edwards is going to show up here soon, you know? In fact, now I begin to see why Edwards is so imbalanced. If this is the incidental warning that Jesus gives in a passage having really nothing to do with hell. And furthermore, isn't Jesus speaking to good, upstanding members of the church that respect their pastors and elders and haven't been admonished recently? And why is he threatening them with hell? It doesn't sound real redeemerish, to, you know? It doesn't sound Tim Keller-ish. You know? This is like, a, this church, there's something wrong with this church. They talked about fiery hell, I mean. How do we know it's fire? It might just be annihilationism, you know? And... Therefore, so this is the application. Jesus has warned us, and then he says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. And do you realize what he's saying here? What he's saying is, don't bring your fight to this table. And it's the most basic thing about the home. Who enjoys eating a meal where the father is hangry? There were many meals my children did not enjoy because I came home hungry and irritable. Who enjoys children fighting at the table? Who enjoys father and mother fighting at the table? Can you understand that God hates it when his children that he has adopted come to this table and are irritated, are accusing you of being worth nothing, are calling you a fool. And yet, week after week after week, before and after the services, I go from person to person to person trying to make peace between you. And you say, oh, really? Well, that's, that's, that, that, that's sad. <laughs> you, know? you know? You should go you should all go into the Roman Catholic Church because they never have to do that. You guys should become Unitarians. You know, you guys should become Lutherans. They have law and gospel. Listen, the truth is that the church is filled with conflict. And you can lie about it all you want, You can think that you and your husband have just the perfect relationship, and you can write it up on Facebook all you want. But if that's true, then I just can't figure out why it is that I'm working so hard. You know, I just go around making up problems so I can solve them. Because I enjoy it. Just like cops enjoy going into domestic situations. Cops showed up at a domestic quarrel in in the low-income housing project that Mary Lee and I lived in when we were first married. He went to the hospital. He lost a number of teeth, had a concussion. Another time, I tried to intervene when that couple was fighting. She had the... Remember the, the story about the revolver and the purse? She was swinging that purse like a bludgeon, and it had a heavy revolver in it, and she kept hitting... Her live in boyfriend on the head. He was gushing blood. They had a little two or three month old baby sitting on a sloped hood of a car right next to them. And she kept hitting him and hitting him and hitting him. And that man had never hit her. And he never did anything other than take her blows. Cop comes into them. And you say, well, yeah, but they're people that live in low-income housing. I say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, you're scrupulous. You don't hit your husband. You just disapprove of him. If I were to, if I were to trust the honesty of the men here and ask the men here, how many of you constantly feel the disapproval of your wife? I'm telling you, the vast majority of hands would go up here. Okay? And if I were to ask the wives to raise their hand, if they constantly feel the condemnation of their husbands? (laughs) So Jesus says, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, You come to the Lord's table. and You don't discern the unity of the body. You violate it by coming here and getting drunk because you're rich. You violate it by committing incest against your father's wife. You violate it because you're proud. Think of all the sins against the unity of the body that the Corinthians committed. Going to court against each other. Acting superior because you have the gifts of tongues. He says, therefore, if you... presenting your offering at the altar. In other words, you come into worship. If you come into worship and you're divided, he says this. He says, don't worship me. Don't, Don't even try to worship me. Because this is my family, and I love everyone here. I have reconciled you to my Father. Don't you dare violate the worship by your attitude towards someone else in the body of Christ. Don't you dare do that. You know, there are certain people in here, and it's been true in every one of my churches, I know every single week they come, what they think about is how superior they are to me. I know that. Some of you, every time we talk, you make a point of showing me that you're superior to me. I had this farmer in my church up in Wisconsin who I just constantly suffered his disapproval because he was the perfect standard for a work ethic. And back then, I was a hard worker. I've gotten sedentary. I mean, a hard worker. And I wasn't an ounce fat. And Mary Lee finally told me one time she said, Tim, it doesn't matter what you do, he will never change his judgment of every pastor. That's his judgment of pastors. They're all a bunch of lazy dogs. And nobody is superior to him. He, he holds the standard. He holds the standard. I watched him work with his son. It was such a pathetic thing. It was so sad. Jesus says, not in my house, not in my house. If I'm not happy, nobody's happy. Don't bother worshiping. Don't come to the Lord's table because if you come to the Lord's table, you violate the unity of body. I'm going to make you sick and some of you will die. You realize that's what it says in Corinthians. That's why many of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep, because you violate the body of Christ. That's how serious division is in the body of Christ. And then he says, Therefore you're presenting your offering, and there remember that your brother has something against you. You remember in the King James what that is? Remember? Ought. Your brother has ought. Ought against you. Leave your, now here's an interesting thing. At this your, it goes from plural to singular. So before, if you, 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 it's plural. He's like, if you, if you, if you. And then he says, leave your gift. He he narrows it down to the individual. And he says, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Isn't that sweet? How is it that we can read this and read the table exhortations of 1 Corinthians 11 and never, ever, ever have somebody come under conscience during the preaching of God's word and leave with their wife or their husband or their children or leave with another member of the church? How is it? It just so happens that never in this church have we ever had anybody that's come under conviction of their bitterness, their anger, their lack of forgiveness in the worship. You know, I would just love to once see somebody who is about to put something in the plate and then all of a sudden they remember something and they pull, <laughs> you know, they pull it back and they get up. Has any of you, anybody ever seen that actually happen? Well, all right. I thought nobody would say. Anybody else other than Doug? He comes from the South, so I suppose it's possible that they do that in the South. Oh. Now, what this is not talking about is this is not talking about doing what a man did with my wife one time, which is we stopped the the communion long enough for people to make things well if they needed to. And a man came up to Mary Lee and said, I want you to know that at such and such a time I was so angry at you, but I forgive you. (laughs) That's so helpful, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and Mary Lee said she was she was completely at sea, knowing what to do with that, because if you knew the circumstances, I'm glad it was him. It was her he had to deal with, and not me. It concerned one of our daughters. You know, it's like, oh, dude, really, really. Leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law. You know how we think Jesus is so gentle. Have you noticed that Jesus' teaching always has both a carrot and a stick? And here comes the stick. He says, make friends quickly with your opponent. In other words, do this right now. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Okay, so what is your marriage like? What's your marriage like? What kind of face does your wife have? How fat is she? And you say, what does it have to do with weight? And I say, well, in Africa, every single person looks at a woman to see if she's happy and fat. And if she is, they know that it's a good marriage and that her husband's rich, that he provides well for her. What do people see in the face of your wife? What about your children? What about your children? What do your children say about your fatherhood? What about your relationships with the other people here today? Come on. Come on. Think of all the people here that you look down on. And you can just give me a rundown of every single sin they commit. All the ways are inferior to your most excellent righteousness that, that actually is precisely the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, it's bankrupt and you're the only person that can't see it. Listen, none of us live anywhere else except in the grace and mercy of God. Okay, And the more you get to know me, the more you'll know this is the case with me. And then you have to make a choice whether you love me or not. And if you love me, you don't love me because I'm lovable. You love me because you were first loved by God. So I'll end with a story because it's interesting. I have this guy that I really like a lot. I've gotten to be quite close with him, and I do a lot of work with him. And he runs a body shop. So you know the kind of, you know... Right, and uh, I hadn't seen him in a while. I went over to see him this week, and after I got done, I got I went home, and when I got home, I got a text, and he said, "I know something that you don't know." Well, it was a weird text, you know. Generally, he's not talking about anything other than things that go bump in the night, you know, like paint and metal, and you know. And, and so I wrote him back, and I said, I'm all ears, you know, I'm all ears. So he writes me back, and he says, a couple of people were just here who say they saw you walk into Walmart, and you took a cart from an old man, and then you, you uh, how did he say it? You cut off a girl. You took a cart from an old man, and you cut off a girl. Well, immediately, I knew what he was talking about. Because I had gone to Walmart, and I'm not going to tell you what happened, but it was very irritating to me. And it went on for a long time, and it, it, it kept not getting solved. So I was walking all around from this place to this place. So, by the time I walked into the door he was talking about, I was what? Im? Go ahead, say it. The one thing everybody here knows I am, right? Go ahead, say it. Yeah, impatient. Why did it take you so long to say it? (laughs) I was impatient, and I was irritated, angry right? Okay, I was impatient, irritated, angry. Well, then I began to process what had actually happened that I had had described to him by him, and I knew that I had unintentionally cut her off because, and I knew that I had looked at her, and and it wasn't a little girl, it was a woman, but I had said to her, excuse me, and I also knew that nobody would have known I said, excuse me, and that I hadn't intended it. Why? Well, because I was giving off impatient, angry vibes. And so it was not inaccurate to describe me the way I was. Yes, there were extenuating circumstances, but they didn't extenuate me at all. And I'm telling you, I was embarrassed. Now, why was I embarrassed? Because I'd been caught? Yeah, but the real reason I was embarrassed is the reason that you're embarrassed from ever saying that you're sorry to your children or to your wife. It's because you know that the thing that you're going to apologize for has been a lifelong story and that it's going to continue. Because what? Because it is a law of sin and death that you struggle with every day. You know, when when he wrote that to me, and I thought about how I had been irritable with Mary Lee and various work in our home in the previous 24 hours. Now, previous 36 40, 70, (laughs) our whole marriage. So then you have a decision. You have to make a decision. What are you going to do? You've been caught. It's true. But who is this dude? And who are the people he's talking to, right? That's what I thought about. Who is it that doesn't like me, that was telling stories about me? Right, right. I know you wouldn't think these things. And what? Well, you know, my my eminence, my dignity, the reputation of Jesus Christ, my pastoral ministry. <laughs> Come on. (laughs) I mean, I can't. I can't can't cop to that stuff. It would be all over because everybody would then know what I am. And I have to show how actually it was Walmart and it was them and it was the card and it was this, that, and the other thing, you know? So I wrote him back and I said, I did tell him that I had said excuse me, because I thought that was a key part of the detail, right? And it's an objective fact. And it does ameliorate. And then I said, but you know something, the truth is, I am an impatient man. Please pray for me. If I could, I would ask the older man to forgive me. And would you please tell whomever spoke to you that I'm sorry for my sin? Okay? 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 Are we all on the same page? Do we all realize that that's the state of the art of us reconciling the world to Jesus? Okay? That is giving glory to God instead of grabbing it for yourself. Okay? Okay? Now, you can sit there, and if you're a nasty person, you can say, well, the story redounds to his glory because he's a great example of exactly what he's telling us to do. And I say, yes. But I mean, if you want to come up and confess that you took a cart from an old man (laughs) at Walmart and cut off a young woman? Now, I actually didn't take the cart from him. (laughs) Okay, I shoved it two feet to the left and stopped it so it was... And he never knew what I was doing. So listen, humble yourself. Humble yourself. You have somebody here that you despise, that you have ought against, you make it right. Why? Because I will not tolerate my family fighting with each other. I won't do it. And that means that if you refuse to humble yourself, what you will end up doing is you will end up hating me. And that's the reason, fathers, that you do not create peace in your home. Because you don't want to be hated, principally by your wives. Come on, people. All right, you ready? You ready? We have a closing hymn. You ready? Come on, people. Smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Let us love one another right now. Right now. Right now. Boom, 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 boom. It is a song. Let's pray. Father, you have said that if we do not forgive others, that your heavenly Father will not forgive us. And so we tremble before our judgmentalism, our moralism, our pride, our envy, our victim status. Father, help us to be repulsed by these things, these sins. Help me to be patient and kind. Help us to be truthful in our inward parts, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.